is from the book of Hebrews, chapter 10, verses 19 to 25. And it's on page 1218 in the church Bibles. Hebrews 10, verses 19 to 25, page 1218. Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way opened for us through the curtain, that is, his body, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart and with the full assurance that faith brings, having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience and having our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess, for he who is promised is faithful. And let us consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds, not giving up meeting together, as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day approaching. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Pauline. Let's, let's pray as we think about this passage together. Lord Jesus, uh, we, we started uh, right at the beginning of the month uh, thinking about your invitation, your call to, to us, your disciples, your apprentices, to abide in you. And we pray that you'd show us how to do that. Would your Holy Spirit open your word to our hearts and our hearts to your word? Grant us a closer walk with you now and always, we pray. Amen. Amen. So we started, like I said, uh, 2023, looking at Jesus' words in John 15 uh, and the simple call that Jesus gives to his apprentices on the eve of his death to abide in him, the true vine. And in the following weeks, we've been looking at how the spiritual disciplines or the rhythms of grace, as we're calling them, can help us with that. Habits that Christians have practiced for centuries, uh, which are rooted in Jesus' own life and power. And today we're looking at the fourth on that list, community. If we believe that God wants us to be a church that loves extravagantly, then the way we're going to learn that is through the practice of community, which at its simplest means doing the Christian life together. So let's just root this for us in our reading. And let us consider how we may spur one another on towards love and good deeds, not giving up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day approaching. And so the great point of this passage is we need each other. The Christian faith is personal, but it's never private. And what I mean is that no one else can live out your Christian life for you. You have to do it for yourself. But at the same time, we don't do it in isolation from everyone else. Faith in Christ brings us into a community of faith, the church. 
So Cyprian of Carthage, um, who uh, was uh, one of the early church fathers, put it this way. Uh, so the, the Latin is extra ecclesiam nulla salus, which means apart from the church, there is no salvation. Now I know that might sound, on first hearing it, like the height of ecclesiastical arrogance. But bear with him for a moment, because what he's saying is two things. First, he's saying that we receive saving faith through the church, i.e. through other Christians. How did you come to faith? My guess is that another Christian played a part in it. Is that a fair assumption? God works through people like you and me to bring others to saving faith in Christ. And secondly, what Cyprian is saying is that the church is actually what salvation looks like. God isn't, God's intention isn't just to save individuals, but to create a family for himself. So salvation is a we thing, not just an I thing. And we in the modern Western world often miss the importance of Christian community in the Bible because we live in what is a very individualistic society. And we tend to read the Bible through those individualistic lenses. And what's more, one of the things that makes it hard for us is that when you pick up the Bible and you read it in the English translation, the word you, well, we only have one word for you in, in, in English, whether it's talking about you singular or you plural. Now, Angie, at this point, if she were here, she would proudly tell me that in Texas, they do have a plural for you, which is y'all. Um, nevertheless, what it, that means is that when you or I read something like the Sermon on the Mount and Jesus saying, you are the light of the world, we think Jesus is saying he wants me to be the light of the world. But in actual fact, what Jesus is saying is, I want y'all to be the light of the world. Do you see the difference? It's not a solo sport. And, and the, so the simple truth I'd like us to take away this morning is that Christians belong to one another in Christ and need each other if they are to live faithfully as followers of Christ in the world. And so I'm going to try and anchor that uh, in this passage in Hebrews 10. A wonderful reading. There's lots in it, even though it's short. Uh, and I just want to try and draw on a few other passages as well. But to flesh out a picture uh, of community and to answer two questions. Essentially, what is Christian community? Why does it matter? So, number one, what is Christian community? So, uh, those of you who are playing bingo, uh, listen to how German theologian Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who has literally written the book about Christian community, Life Together, he was martyred by the Nazis. Um, uh, he set up uh, an illegal cemetery, se not cemetery, uh, seminary, um, a, a theological college um, for, 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 for uh, German pastors during the, during the Nazi regime, uh, whilst the, the rest of the mainstream church had capitulated to, to, to the Nazis. Anyway, he says this. He says, Christianity means community through Jesus Christ and in Jesus Christ. No community is more or less than this. Whether it be a brief single encounter or daily fellowship of years, 
Christian community is only this. We belong to one another only through and in Jesus Christ. The church is never actually defined in the New Testament. But elsewhere, Bonhoeffer described the church as Christ existing in community. So you see, this community isn't just a nice optional extra in the Christian life. It's right at the heart of what Christianity is all about. But notice this. It's community in Christ. What unites us isn't our politics. What unites us isn't our class or our educational background. It isn't our marital status. What unites us is Christ and Christ alone. And that's the first thing that I want us to see about all true Christian community is that it's Christ-centered. And that's why in the church logo that we have, what's right at the middle of that box with CCSO on it? The cross. The passage we've heard has lots to say about uh, Christian community, but Hebrews 10 starts by talking about Christ's once-for-all sacrifice for sin. So it says, we're called to draw near to God, in verse 22, on the basis of Jesus having opened a new and living way for us by his blood. So Jesus' death and resurrection are the foundation of everything else. Our lives are lived in response to what God has done first for us in Jesus Christ. And what's more, I want want you to hear what the author of the letter to the Hebrews says about this salvation uh, in Christ. So I'm going to read the first few verses for you again, and I want you to tell me what you notice, okay? Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus by a new and living way opened for us through the curtain that is his body. And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart and with the full assurance that faith brings, having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience and having our bodies washed with pure water. Now I've kind of done the work for you, but what, what do you notice Where is the word I in there? Where is the word me in there? It's not. We, us, our. A couple of weeks ago, we we looked at at the Lord's Prayer. What are the first two words? Our Father. Not my Father. Though he is your Father, but it's ours. Salvation in Christ is a, is a communal affair. It's not an individual thing. Uh, Richard Foster uh, observes that when God led the children of Israel out of their bondage in Egypt, he did so as a people, not one individual at a time. And it's no different for the new Passover that Christ has achieved. So in, uh, in the Church of England, one of the Church of England's communion prayers, um, it explains that Jesus' death and resurrection won for God a holy people. Not just a group of holy individuals who go to church to express their personal relationship with God. Christian community is a, is a primary thing 
It's not a secondary thing. And Christ alone is the basis of our unity. I love this illustration from A.W. Tozer. Has it ever occurred to you, he asks, that 100 pianos all tuned to the same fork are automatically tuned to one another? They are of one accord by being tuned not to each other, but to another standard to which each one must individually bow. So 100 worshippers meeting together, each one looking away to Christ, are in heart nearer to each other than they could possibly be were they to become unity conscious and turn their eyes away from God to strive for closer fellowship. You see what he's saying? If I just try and be, uh, we have try and try and be united just with, with each of you, it'll be a cacophony, be an absolute mess of contradictions. But if there's one standard, and that's Christ, then the closer we are to Christ, the closer we are to one another. Another way of thinking about it is uh, thinking of spokes going into the center of a hub on a, uh, on a wheel. And if Jesus is the center, then the closer you get to the middle, the closer you get to one another. Now, uh, sadly, um, we don't always do this very well. And in the last couple of, le- couple of weeks, we've seen uh, some proposals uh, in, the, in the press from the bishops of the Church of England uh, that uh, have really put institutional unity at the heart rather than biblical truth. Uh, And it's unfortunately a prime example of what it means to turn our eyes away from God in order to try and focus on the unity itself. So what we see is we're one because in the words of the Apostle Paul to the church in Ephesus, he says, there is one body, one spirit, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. So the basis of Christian community, the foundation of it, can only ever be Jesus. There can be no true Christian fellowship where we believe in different Jesuses, or a different spirit, or a different gospel. In fact, in 1 Corinthians 5, Paul says that we should visibly separate from other believers who are unrepentantly saying and doing things that are at significant odds with who Jesus is and what the gospel is. Uh, And uh, again, for those of you playing bingo, Dallas Willard writes this. The aim of God in history is the creation of an all-inclusive community of loving persons with himself included in that community as its prime sustainer and most glorious inhabitant. And what that means is there's no room for pride in the church. There's no room for racism in the church. There's no room for homophobia in the church. What makes us the people of God isn't our goodness, but God's grace. By grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not of your own doing. It is the gift of God, not by work so that no one can boast. Christian community is all-embracing because the love of God for sinners is all-embracing. 
at the cross, the arms of Jesus are stretched wide enough to encompass all people, men and women, rich and poor, black and white, single and married, employed and unemployed, young and old, straight and gay, doctors and drug dealers. But, and this is very important, lest anyone misunderstand what I'm saying, it's an all-inclusive community in which everyone is welcome to explore Christ's call to repentance and faith. Death to self and new life to God. So the former Archbishop of Canterbury, Willi- uh, um, Rowan Williams, says this. He says, I don't believe inclusion is a value in itself. Welcome is, we welcome people into the church. We say, you can come in and that decision will change you. We don't say, come in and we ask no questions. I do believe conversion means conversion of habits, behaviors, ideas, emotions. The boundaries are determined by what it means to be loyal to Jesus Christ. That means to display in all things the mind of Christ. Paul is always saying this in his letters. Ethics is not a matter of a set of abstract rules. It is a matter of living the mind of Christ. Now, in other words, what he's saying is that everyone's welcome at the foot of the cross. But being at the foot of the cross will change you. You can't see what your sin costs and carry on as if it were nothing. We come as we are, but we don't stay that way. So adulterers are welcome here, but they're not welcome to continue in their adultery. Greedy people are welcome here, but they're not welcome to stay greedy. Serial gossips are welcome here, but they're not welcome to stay serial gossips. The cross says a loud, clear, resounding yes to sinners, but an equally loud, clear, resounding no to our sin. And so the cross is the key to an all-inclusive church. Now, we, we might not be very good at it, but we do know where the key is. Only as we keep the cross front and center can we hope to truly experience all that Christian community is meant to be. And so the first answer to the question, what is Christian community, is that Christian community is the people saved by Jesus. But the second answer to that question is that Christian community is God's family. The New Testament uses lots of different images to describe the church. We looked at some of them last year. Uh, So the body of Christ, the bride of Christ, God's temple, and so on. But by far and away, the most common image that's used in the New Testament, in fact, it's so common we we, we seldom even notice it, is family. So just look with me. The, The first words of verse 19 of our reading. Therefore, brothers and sisters... We hear these words so often in the New Testament, we seldom realize how radical they are. But for the New Testament writers, family imagery falls effortlessly from their minds onto the paper in front of them. Not only do they, uh, following Jesus' lead, call one another brother and sister, but they speak of members of this family receiving a new birth and becoming children of God. 
the Apostle Paul, in a, a verse which I believe wonder, wonderfully describes what the uh, Christian minister's calling is, says that he's in the pains of childbirth until Christ is formed in them. And it's only a short hop from there to, to the thoughts of Cyprian, who I mentioned earlier, who said that nobody has God for their father who does not have the church for their mother. Hal Miller, a contemporary theologian, says again and again, New Testament writers assume they are a family with other Christians and act on the basis of that vision. So just take a moment, just look around the other people. This is your family. These are your brothers and sisters. Russ, can I grab that? My iPad's gone, gone haywire. Sorry. <laughs> there we go. Right. So these are, your, these are your family. We're made family through baptism and faith. So the people in the seats around us aren't just strangers that we, we see once a week, though they might be. They're your family. Uh, what's more, the Bible says, and this will... Uh, might start to feel quite uncomfortable to some of us, that the blood of Jesus binds us closer together than the blood that's flowing through your veins. And like other families, we don't choose who your brothers and sisters are. Some of them you might get on with really well. Some of them might rub you up the wrong way. That's family. Now, there are lots of places in uh, in the New Testament that emphasize Uh, There is great variety in the body of believers. Paul's image of the church as a body made up lots of different parts is the obvious one. Uh, It's a picture of unity and diversity. So just think about, uh, but just think for a moment about the group of believers that Jesus called around himself. Not only do they come from different walks of life, but the most glaring challenge, just, just think about this, try and get your head around this for a moment. This is just two of the twelve. Simon the Zealot, who uh, the Zealots were a group of basically freedom fighters who were trying to, to, to free themselves from Roman occupation through violence. And Matthew, the tax collector, the Roman collaborator. That must have been fun. I mean, I don't know if any of you have seen the TV show The Chosen, which is kind of a relatively new over the last few years kind of attempt to put the stories of the Gospels into TV. And it's, there's a wonderful scene where Jesus calls Matthew to follow him. And Peter jumps in and says, whoa, 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 what are you doing, Jesus? I don't get it. And Jesus says, You didn't get it when I chose you either, Peter. But he says, this is different. I'm not a tax collector. And welcoming Matthew into the group, Jesus comes out with this incredible line, get used to different. A zealot and a tax collector in the twelve. And it's for that reason that theologian Don Carson, um, I think beyond, oh, you're already there. Wow, look at that. 
telepathic, um, says this, the church itself is not made up of natural friends, it is made up of natural enemies. What binds us together is not common education, common race, common income levels, common politics, common nationality, common accents, common jobs, or anything of the sort. Christians come together, not because they form a natural collocation, but because they've been saved by Jesus Christ. In this light, Christian community Uh, In this light, they are a band of natural enemies who love one another for Jesus' sake. So Christian community is an essential part of the life of faith because when we're born again, we're brought into God's family and we're not only, uh, and we're not the only, we're not only children in God's family. We have brothers and sisters. God's family is bigger, wider, more diverse than any you've ever experienced before. It's multi-ethnic, it's multicultural, it's multi-generational. Frankly, our own families are just far too small to reflect the greatness of God. And that brings us on to our second main question. Don't worry, this will be shorter. Why does Christian community matter? So we've already said that one reason that Christian community matters is because it reflects the reality of God's salvation, that it is cosmic, that it's corporate, not private and individual. So the very existence of Christian community and the nature of its life together is meant to be a small working model of what God wants to do for the whole creation in the new heaven and new earth. So uh, theologian Stanley Hauerwas says this, the church does not have a mission, the church is mission. And what that means is that mission isn't just something that the church does as one of its many activities. It's something the church is by its very existence. The fact of its life together and the nature of its life together is meant to say something. It says that there is a new and different way to be human in and through Jesus, which this group of people are making possible and visible. Uh, So he goes on in uh, in this book, Resident Aliens. He says, The world needs the church because without the church, the world does not know who it is. The only way for the world to know that it is being redeemed is for the church to point to the Redeemer by being a redeemed people. The way for the world to know that it needs redeeming, that it is broken and fallen, is for the church to enable the world to strike hard against something which is an alternative to what the world offers. So in other words, the church is meant to be a sign that there's a new way of doing things, that God's kingdom has started coming on earth as in heaven. And the church's job is to stand out, to shine like stars in the sky. But it's difficult to stand out. It's difficult to dance to a different drumbeat. It's difficult to swim against the cultural tide. And if we're going to do it, we're going to need a lot of encouragement along the way. And that's just what the author of the letter to the Hebrews says in verses 23 to 25. Let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds, not giving up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another. And all the more as you see the day approaching. So one of the main reasons that we meet together like this and in other ways during the week is to encourage one another to keep going with Jesus. But why would the author of this letter say, don't give up meeting together, unless people were thinking, 
I'm not sure I can do this anymore. You see, the rest, from the rest of the letter, we've got a pretty good idea why Christians were starting to think that. Namely, because the threat of persecution was getting higher and higher. So in uh, chapter 12, verse 4, we read this. In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. So the implication seems to be that no one's been killed yet, but it's getting hotter. The pressure is building. It's hard being a Christian at the best of times. But when you're facing persecution for your faith, goodness me, how difficult. And yet notice what the author of this letter says. The harder it is to be a Christian, the more important it is to meet together. Not the less. That's why secret believers in places like North Korea or Afghanistan or Somalia risk arrest to meet together. Because they know they need the encouragement of their fellow believers to stay faithful to Jesus. Uh, So the the London Institute for Contemporary Christianity, LICC, has a wonderful illustration of this. Uh, Has anyone seen this before? No? Okay. Uh, And it uses grey and red dots. So the red dots represent the statistical fact that only around 6% of the UK population worships in a Christian church regularly, which is defined as once a month. Now, it's not very many, is it? But it's not insignificant. Here's how they explain it. They say, when we gather as worshippers, so that's this left, uh, left box, uh, when we gather as worshippers, we remind ourselves that we believe a p- very particular story about the world. We believe it's God's. He created it. We believe it's broken because of sin. We believe that Jesus' death makes new life possible. We believe that one day everything will be transformed. We live as people with a distinct story in a culture that may not believe any of that. We are red dots. And when we gather, we do so to strengthen and encourage one another to be who we are. God's chosen people. But, as important as gathering with other believers is, can we have the next slide? We spend most of our time, look at those red dots, among grey dots. The people who, who don't regularly go to church. The people in your workplace. The people that you play football with on a Friday night. Whoever. Now, this, and we... In order to have an impact on them, we need to remain red dots. Now, this church may not be massive numerically, but if you were to add up the combined total of all the people that we know, actually, there's going to be quite a lot of people that we know between us. We may well be the only Christian in our family or our workplace or our class at school. And the challenge is to stay red among that sea of grey. Not to let the redness be washed out. Not becoming the same as everybody else. One of the main reasons for our meeting together with other Christians is to help us stay red through the week. To help you shine like a star in a dark, dark night sky. 
as you're in the staff room at school on a Tuesday morning, or playing football with your friends on that Friday evening, or looking after your grandkids on Saturday afternoon. So let me just finish very quickly with a couple of quick uh, points of application. First, we're not going to be faithful or fruitful as Christians for the long haul if we don't commit to being part of a Christian community, not just on Sundays, but during the week also. So please do try and make Sundays a priority, but please also explore being part of a cell group, if you're not already, or a midweek group of some, some other kind to support you and to spur you on in your faith. Uh, some of you probably already do this, but you may consider be, being part of like a, a triplet or a quartet, just a, a small group of people that you can meet with, uh, with whom you can be open and vulnerable and accountable. So I'm part of a, a triplet with a couple of other vicars who I trained with at Theological College. And we share our joys and our struggles, our questions. We listen to each other. We seek advice from one another. We pray together. It's a gift. And it keeps me going. But we all need that. Second, if we're born-again believers in Christ, we are family. So I want us to to challenge one another and to think through what might it mean to live like we're family? What might that look like? How can we get to know one another if we don't know each other already? Perhaps we can invite people over for dinner, especially those who live alone. Uh, An even more radical challenge might be for us to consider what might it look like for us to live like family you know, major Christian festivals, for instance, like Christmas and Easter. So instead of rushing home to be with our families, to remember that actually being there is being with our family. Another challenge for us, and like I said, this is so hard in an individualistic society, it might be submitting ourselves to the guidance of our church family. So ask your your Christian community to to pray through and discern big life questions with you. Whether you start a new job, whether to start a new uh, relationship, whether it's right to look at getting married, and to trust God to to guide you through them. Finally, uh, let me just address the elephant in the room really quickly. Yes, Christian community can also be extremely frustrating. Just like being part of any family can be extremely frustrating. So, you know, you know the old saying, if you find the perfect church, leave it, because you'll only mess it up. And it's true. But God can, and he often does, in my experience, use the people we find most frustrating to draw us to a deeper understanding of ourselves and him. The annoying person who's sitting a couple of rows in front of you may just be God's gift to you to help you become more loving, more compassionate, more patient, more understanding, more empathetic. Our disappointment with Christian community is actually a really important thing. 
Uh, and Bonhoeffer, who I mentioned at the start, says that we mustn't love the idea of community more than the reality of it. Because the reality, of the reality of it is messy. Do you know why it's messy? I'm messy. You know, one of the, one of, one of the uh, great illustrations, I think, of what the church is, is a hospital for sinners. You're going to get coughed on. That's, if, that's, if this is a hospital for sinners, you, I'm, I'm sorry, but you are going to get coughed on. But that too is God's grace to us. Because in the very messiness of Christian community, we're reminded of what draws us together. That man on the cross. And so when you're ticked off with someone, and you will be, probably with me, we remember that what unites us is that man on the cross. And that if we were all perfect, we wouldn't be gathered around that man on the cross. <laughs> we're family through what Jesus has done for us and to us. So my brother and my sister is anyone who is a sinner saved by grace, just like me. Let's pray. Father God, thank you that you've made us part of your worldwide family of believers. Thank you that you've given us brothers and sisters to spur us on, to encourage us in what's often a very difficult road. Lord, would you free us from a spirit of independence and help us to realize our need for one another. In Psalm 16, the, the psalmist says that the saints in the land are his delight. Lord, I pray that that would be true for us as well. May we love not only the idea of community, but the reality of it, even in all its messiness. And may that messiness draw us ever back to the cross, reminding us that we are all sinners saved by grace. And so, Lord, I pray for our brothers and sisters around the world who perhaps even at this very moment are meeting together in your name and in doing so, risking arrest. Lord, would you strengthen the persecuted church? Would you encourage them and us to keep following Jesus to the end of our lives? Amen. Amen. So one of the ways that we remember that we are all sinners saved by grace is by sharing bread and wine together. And it's a reminder of Jesus' death on the cross for us. And I don't choose who Jesus gathers around the table. Whoever he invites is free to gather around his table. And that's where we become brothers and sisters. At his cross. Through his body and his blood given for us.
So we're going to sing together and encourage you to stand if you're able uh, as we respond to God uh, in song. And then we'll gather together and share bread and wine. Let's stand and sing.